أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين So we left off last time discussing some of the Prophet Sallallahu childhood and youth in Mecca and some of the civic activities that he was involved in. So we'll continue with that where we left off. And the next major story of this early period of the Prophet ﷺ is the building or the rebuilding rather of the Kaaba. And as we know from, from our history and our sources that the Kaaba is <clears throat> a house that has been dedicated to the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the time of Adam salam. So because of its antiquity and its history, it will be built and rebuilt throughout history several times. And at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the most recent time prior to, the, to, to what we will discuss today was the building of the Kaaba, or the rebuilding rather, of Abraham and Ismail ﷺ, which is mentioned in the Qur'an. And the Kaaba at, that, at this time was not the way it is today. It was much shorter. It was probably only as tall as, as an average-sized person. So it wasn't very tall the way the Kaaba is today. And it was made out of wood, and it didn't have a roof, and you know it was a structure of antiquity. It was you know not the not the most sturdy of, of structures, and if it rains, it would flood, and you know if there was a fire, it would catch the wood would catch on fire. So it was very common that it would need to be maintained, it would need to be built or rebuilt or fixed or uh, uh, catered to. So uh, uh, during the Prophet's youth, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, this was one such event. But because the Arabs, the people of Quraysh, honored the Kaaba alongside with their polytheism, but they also honored the Kaaba, they needed to make sure that when it came time to fix, rebuild, update, improve the Kaaba, that it was done with material that was purchased from halal money, what they would refer to as halal money. So things that did not involve usury, did not involve gambling, did not involve alcohol. Even the Quraysh, the Jahili Quraysh, this was, this was their understanding. Anyway, at this time, there was a, a shipwreck near the port of Jeddah, which is an ancient port, one of the closest port to Mecca. And because of the shipwreck, the wood of this ship became available. So Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, he went and he sent f- to purchase the wood of this ship so that they could use this wood, and this would you know, be very sturdy timber because it was used for a, a shipping vessel. And they distributed the wood amongst the tribes, so that each tribe would have the honor of adding something to the Kaaba, so there was a collective effort that they would all build it. And they all did that, but then it came time to place the black stone in, in where it is today, and of course, they started to fight. Who is going to do? Because there's only one black stone, or there's only one, you know, it's only the task of one person. So each tribe, they're fighting. 
each tribe is saying, oh, we should do it, no, we should do it, no, it's our right, it's our, you know, you did this, we'll do this, etc., etc. And this went on for several days. So it came, point, it came to the point that they needed to break this gridlock. So after the third day, they said, okay, the next person that's going to walk in, you know, next to the Kaaba, we'll just let this person decide or, or we'll let this person do it. So they all agreed that they would just let this act of randomness dictate what would happen with the black stone. And this was a very common practice for the pre-Islamic Arabs. They were highly superstitious. They would always look for some kind of natural sign or phenomenon to decide things. If you know the birds flew this way, it means it's good. If the birds flew that way, it means all these type of random things. So this goes with their mentality. So who comes walking in? The Prophet ﷺ. So they're very happy. Because it's him. Because they said, ah, this is Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. He is, you know, the honest, the honest one, the trustworthy. So they know that they can trust anything that he's going to say. So remember, this is his reputation before receiving revelation. So this is a big deal for the people of Mecca. The Kaaba is, is not just the center of the city. It's the center of Arabia, of the religious life of Arabia. It is something that all the tribes come and pay homage to. They all perform some sort of pilgrimage. If the tribes are coming to Mecca for business outside of the time of uh, uh, Hajj, they would you know, do tawaf around the Kaaba. It was something that everybody respected. And for them, it housed all of their idols, all of their gods, around 360 of them, both inside and outside the Kaaba. So for these people, this was a main, main deal, main event. So... The Prophet ﷺ is given this task of solving this problem. So he takes you know, his shawl, he puts it on the, on the ground, and he said, okay, we'll put the black stone on the shawl, and we'll all, everybody, a representative from every tribe, will carry the black stone to the corner, and then I'll put it in its place. So that way, everybody got to participate in this honor. And then the Prophet ﷺ, with his blessed hands, places the, the, the hajar, the black stone, in its current location. So this tells us a little bit about how the Prophet ﷺ solved problems and how he, he could have clearly just taken it and put it himself and everyone would have been happy and that would have been the end of the story. We wouldn't have thought anything less of it. But he sought to find a way to have everyone participate because this is a nafsi issue. You know, when the Prophet ﷺ walked into this situation, it's all about nafs. Everybody wants it for themselves. Every tribe wants it for their nafs. And usually things of this world, dunya things, even if they are coded with religion, are, are usually a problem of the nafs. And this is one of the main meta-issues that the Prophet ﷺ came to help us solve. How do we deal with our nafs? How do we not be like that? Uh, you know, they all built the Kaaba, they're all taking care of it anyway. They don't have to fight over, you know, you can't take something that's holy and then make it something profane and fight over it. So the Prophet ﷺ, he understood that. He understood the psychology of the people and he understood that it's important for them even regardless of what we just said. He, said. he understood that that's how the human nature is. So he found a way to deal with that. Very similar to, for example, when we'll read inshallah or we'll come to talk about at the very end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ when he enters into Mecca, victorious, and he says publicly, whoever enters in the house of Abu Sufyan, they are safe. That part of the story, he's also catering 
to the ego of Abu Sufyan. Because now Abu Sufyan, he feels like he's still in charge. So if, if you come into my house, Abu Sufyan is thinking, then you're also safe. So I have, I have something uh, for myself in this day. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't come in and squash him completely. But he said, whoever enters into the house of Abu Sufyan, he is safe. And you know, this is why subsequently Abu Sufyan becomes, becomes Muslim and is counted as one of the Sahabas radiallahu anhu. In any case, the Kaaba was rebuilt, but not including the half circle that we know to today as the Hijr of Ismail, because they didn't have enough funds, or halal funds rather, to complete the structure. And that is why the Kaaba remains the way it is today with the Kaaba that we know, and then the half circle. But that half circle, that is part of the Kaaba. That's why during prayer time, you're not allowed to pray inside it, because then you would be inside the Kaaba. And the Prophet ﷺ, he wanted to rebuild the Kaaba with its original parameters, but he felt that that would have caused too much trouble to the Muslims because they had just become Muslim and Mecca was just taken, so he left it that way, and out of respect for that, we just leave it the way it is. I mean, imagine if everyone goes to Mecca tomorrow and then the Kaaba looks different. Everyone would, it would be like a big scandal for us. We, we wouldn't know how to, you know, we would go a little berserk. So the Prophet ﷺ understood that that would be a problem. Throughout this time, as the Prophet ﷺ became older, he also got involved in trade. And trade was the way of the people of Mecca, and it was also the way of the descendants of Ismail ﷺ. And to this effect that the Prophet ﷺ, he says, as is narrated in Tirmidhi, The honest businessman or businesswoman will be resurrected with the Prophet's the righteous and the martyrs Yom Al-Qiyamah. It's as if the Prophet is telling us that business is so difficult, so hard to be honest in business that if you're actually in business and honest, that's going to be your reward. Because that's how dirty the, the game of business can be. When you're dealing with other people's money and trade and markup and profit and capital, loans, debts, etc. So the Prophet of course was an honest tradesman. And what would happen is usually the people would pool their capital together and they would hire somebody to take this capital to go either north or to go south to buy things, then to sell them, buy and sell, buy and sell goods, commodities, things like that. And it was at this time that we also know that of the people that engaged in trade uh, and was excellent at trade and well known was Lady Khadija alayhi salam which we will get to in a second. But we have two hadith that tell us about the honesty of the Prophet ﷺ during this time. One of them is narrated in the Sunan of Abi Dawood, and it is narrated by the companion Abdullah ibn Abi al-Hamsa, who narrates during this time before Islam that he had a business dealing with the Prophet ﷺ, and that he had promised the Prophet ﷺ that he would return with you know, the, the, the goods, and the Prophet was going to buy them from him. And three days passed, and this companion that's narrating the hadith, he forgot. And then when he recalled, he came, and he found the Prophet in the same spot, waiting for three days. And the Prophet said, oh, where have you been? You know, I've, you, you, you made me all tired, I've been here waiting for you. So he attests, later in Islam, he attests to the honesty of the Prophet You know, he gave his word for a transaction, and then the Prophet waited, until that transaction took place, even though several days had passed. And in another hadith, 
one of the Prophet's وسلم, uh, business partners during this time, his name is uh, Sa'ib. Again, this is before Islam, before the revelation. He was his, his partner. They would travel together. They would you know, pull the capital that I said together. It would be sent to buy and sell, buy and sell. And he said, He was the best of business partners. Now ask anybody that's in business, if they have partners, or if they have uh, investors, ask him about the relationship between their partners. and their, They will not say, He was the best business partner ever. I loved working with him. Right? That's not usually what you say when you have, uh, and I speak from personal experience, that's not what you say when you're in business. It's very difficult, it's, you know, the nafs gets involved, etc. So he says, oh, he was the best business partner, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He would not fight. Meaning he wouldn't argue, he wasn't argumentative. Even though money is involved, capital's involved, goods involved, profits involved, he wouldn't argue, he was easygoing, he wouldn't fight, he wouldn't complain. And he wouldn't go against me, he wouldn't always argue against me. And he wouldn't prevent me from doing things. Now, all of those traits, if you've ever been involved in business or if you are in an organization, this is usually not how you describe those that work with you. He didn't argue, he was easygoing, he didn't prevent, he didn't, argue, he didn't say no, he kind of let it be, and he was honest, and he was wonderful to work with. This is like the ultimate LinkedIn uh, you know, a tes- testimony that you can give somebody. You know? He was an honest person. So this was his reputation. So it's one thing to be honest and clean personally, but he was honest and clean, of course, not just personally, but with dealing with other people. And in dealing in very sensitive matters, matters of capital, matters of commerce, of business, of buying and of selling, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And because of this, he traveled uh, a few times to both the Levant, the Sham, and to the Yemen during this time, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So now comes the story of Lady Khadija alayhi salam. She joins the Prophet وسلم, in the fifth grandfather up. So she is from also the, the wider family of the Prophet. At the time that, that she enters into the life of the Prophet, وسلم, she is twice married previously and also a widow. But she, like the Prophet, وسلم, has an excellent reputation. And she is known in this time as a Tahira, as the pure one which is a, you know, a great testament because the people, we refer to this period as al-jahiliya, right? the, pe- pe- the period of ignorance, because of the polytheism and a lot of the practices. So for somebody to come out of that, that their peers, now this is not a, we, we, as Muslims we have our own adjectives that we use for Lady Khadija alayhi salam. This is the, the, the adjective or how she was described by her peers that were not Muslim, as a tahira, as the pure she was extremely wealthy. And when Mecca, as a city or as a, as a country, if we want to use that word, when it would send out a caravan for trade, her caravan, her things, were as long as the caravan of the entire city of Mecca itself. That's how wealthy she was. So pro- probably, arguably, one of, if not the wealthiest person in Mecca at this time. So she hired the Prophet ﷺ, at the age of 25, 
because she knew that he had this reputation of being honest. Now she's not going to go and travel herself. She's going to give somebody the money, you know, a deputy, to go and to execute the trade on her behalf. So she needs somebody that she can trust. So honesty is a very important quality for this type of trade. So she hears of the Prophet ﷺ and she hires him and then she, he travels with Maysara to the Levant. And, and here I want to make a correction from, from last week. Last week I, to, I talked about the, the trip, the Prophet's trip with his uncle and the tree. And I said that this tree is still around till today. It's this tree that's still around. I mean, it's a tree nonetheless. It's the same type of story. And the Prophet Sazam sits in the shade of the tree. But I made a mistake. I got my trees mixed up. So the tree that is in Jordan today is the tree from this story. So that's just a correct. And when I edit the audio, I'll edit all of this out. So it will be, it will be as if I was so smart and I said all the right things at all the right time. So the Prophet Sallallahu he travels to the Levant, to the Shem with, with Maysara, with the Amana, with the trust of Lady Khadija. And in the Levant, they meet a monk. It's like a rest house type of situation. And the monk's name, as we find in our, store, in our sources, is Nusturan. And the Prophet Sallallahu is sitting in the shade of this tree. So nothing weird about that. But the monk, when he sees this sight, he's shocked. So he asks Maisara, who's with the Prophet who is this person? So Maisara is saying, oh, he's such and such and such and such. And then he says, nobody sits under this tree except the Prophet. And this tree is still in existence till, till, till today in, in the kingdom of Jordan. And it is something that it's outside of the capital, Amen, and you can visit it. And... Again, this story and stories like this of this period in the Prophet's life, they remind us that the people that followed religions, revealed religions of the past, they had knowledge that something like this was going to happen. They had these signs. So how did he know that only a Prophet sits next to this tree, under this tree? It's just a random tree. There's nothing peculiar about it. It's just a tree. But he says, only the Prophet sit under this tree. So he, ha- he must have known this. Either... It was written, or it was wisdom that it was passed down, or, or something. But he knew that this was one of the qualities. Just like they knew that one of the qualities is that his name would be the most praised one, that he would have the seal of prophecy behind his back, that he would be honest, that his people would kick him out of Mecca. All of these traits of the Prophet ﷺ, the people of, the, of antiquity knew that more or less this is what the Prophet would look like that will come from this area. So this is a pretty, you know, interesting episode. So Maisara comes back and he's, you know, really, uh, I just thought he was an honest tradesman, but he's going to be a prophet. So he tells Khadija. And after this three-month journey, and after hearing of what happened, Khadija asks for the hand of the Prophet in marriage. And she's 40, and the Prophet is 25. So she asks to marry him. And this is very important that we remember these ages and we remember the sequence of events because a lot of times people that, that don't like us and they, use, they try to nitpick from our tradition, they will say things about the Prophet ﷺ that are not appropriate. That we, we get upset when we hear them. But rather than be upset, we should understand where these things come from and how we should understand these things. So here's a 25-year-old being approached by marriage of a 40-year-old widow who has children, by the way, which we'll talk about in a second. So this becomes 
the first marriage of the Prophet ﷺ. And usually when we talk about the seerah, we just make a little tangent and we talk about the family of the Prophet ﷺ before resuming the discussion in Mecca. And, and we'll just we'll do that because it's important again that we know these names and we know these facts. So Lady Khadija, and I like to use the word lady before the names of the Prophet's wives out of honor because these are our mothers. The wives of the Prophets ﷺ are our mothers, literally. They are like our mothers. Lady Khadija السلام, she had two sons and a daughter from a previous marriage. And the one that is of importance for the seerah is Hind ibn Abi Hala, who becomes Muslim. And who is famous because the very detailed description, physical description of the Prophet وسلم, known as Al-Hilya, known as the description of the Prophet وسلم, is one of them is narrated by Hind ibn Abi Hala. Radiallahu anhu. And it's very common that the, the hilya is made in a nice you know, calligraphy design and we decorate our homes and our mosques with. And the other thing about Sayyidah Khadija for us to remember is she is, the, as the Prophet ﷺ informed us, she is of the women that has reached perfection, kamal. And we refer to her as a siddiqiyya. Like we say Abu Bakr siddiq, she is also a siddiqiyya. Like Mary, the mother of Christ, so this is a very high rank. Sayyidah Khadija's rank in Islam is extremely high. Her purity, her devotion, she was the first human being to believe in the message of the Prophet She was his support, his rock. She is the one that spent from her wealth on the Prophet so he could bring us this message. I mean, this da'wah in its early phase, she was the donor. She was the angel uh, investor in this enterprise known as Islam were it not for her sacrifice, were it not for her steadfastness, absolute steadfastness. And that eventually cost her her life as we'll come to learn later. She succumbs you know, to, the, to the difficulties of being the wife of the Prophet ﷺ. Another important thing for us to remember of Sayyidah Khadija that all of the Prophet's children all come from Sayyidah Khadija except of course Ibrahim. And we'll talk about them in, in a minute. Meaning that the Prophet ﷺ, the prophetic house, the house that the Prophet ﷺ established with, with husband and wife and children, the Prophet ﷺ did not have multiple marriages while he was married to Khadija. He never married another woman while he was married to Sayyidah Khadija. And that's also important for us to remember. Why? Because, you know, let's be honest, multiple marriages is not the, the easiest thing to handle. And it breaks, it can fracture, even though there is the Sharia allows for it with certain conditions, it breaks the, the mojo of the house. and it, it messes things up. The Prophet didn't do that to his children. All of the children are from Khadija. So who are the wives of the Prophet Just by way of tangent. So there's Sauda bint Zama'a, Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, and she was a mufti. Later she becomes a mufti. Umm Salama, who herself was a faqiha, was a jurist. Hafsa, the daughter of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Juwayriya, Umm Habiba bint Abi Sufyan. So you can see a lot of these relations. You know, the daughter of Abu Sufyan, the daughter of Abu Bakr, the daughter of Abu Umar uh, radiallahu anhum. Safiya, who her father was Jewish. Safiya is very interesting because when we find out later in the seerah, she informs the Prophet ﷺ that she was Muslim ever since she was a child. 
So the Prophet said, what do you mean? She said, when you, uh, w- my uncle came home and informed my father of you, that, you know, that w- is he the one? You know, meaning that they were talking about the Prophet as, as, as if they knew that he was going to come, a Prophet was going to come. And she said, from the moment I heard this story, I fell in love with you and I believed in you. So she believed in Islam from when she was a child. Will, will, her story will come later. Zainab al-Maghzumiyyah, who died during the Prophet's life, وسلم, Zainab bin Jahsh, Maymuna bint al-Harith. Those are, are the ten known. And then of course there is Maria and Raihana. Maria, the Coptic, was gifted to the Prophet, she was a slave girl, and she was gifted to the Prophet by the ruler of Egypt, along with her sister. Her sister's name was Sirin, or in some narration, Shirin. So when they were, and the, and the Muqawqas of Egypt gave the Prophet these two slave girls, gave him a donkey named Duldul, and gave him a vat of honey that comes from the south of Egypt. So when, when the girls came into the Prophet's possession, and, and we know from what I said in the very beginning discussing the seerah, that slavery was part of the world order at that time. And Islam found a way to reduce it, restrict it, until it was eventually abolished. But that's not really our subject here. But just I want to flag that so people understand the context. The Prophet asked or, or offered both of them to you know, Islam. Maria, she converted... Sirin, she did not convert. And the Prophet ﷺ gave Sirin to Hassan ibn Thabit. So Hassan ibn Thabit marries Sirin, and that's, that's, her, you know, that, that's what happens with her. And then from Maryam, the Prophet ﷺ has Ibrahim ﷺ, the only child outside of the relationship between the Prophet ﷺ and Lady Khadija. And we know that Ibrahim dies in his infancy, and the Prophet ﷺ cries and is very emotional at the death of Ibrahim. And Maria, even though she is a slave uh, girl to the Prophet she is also from our mothers. Because what does it mean to be married to the Prophet It means that when the Prophet passes, that woman cannot marry somebody else. That's why they are referred to as Ummuhat al-Mu'minin, the mothers of the believers. So when the Prophet passes away, Maria doesn't remarry. So, and she is free. Because she has Ibrahim, and in the Sharia structure of slavery, the woman, that beca- the slave woman that is married, is free when she has a child, is free by the death of the slave owner. So when the Prophet passes away, she becomes a free woman, and then remains, you know, lives out her life in Medina, uh, and uh, is is and lives as a free woman and dies and is one of our ummahat. By consensus, the Prophet ﷺ, when he died, he had nine wives, concurrent. And this is one of the khasa'is of the Prophet ﷺ. These are one of the special qualities. Of course, in the Sharia, the Sharia only allows a man to marry four, with certain conditions, of course. But this is one of the khasa'is, one of the qualities of the Prophet ﷺ, that he was allowed to marry more. And a lot of these wives of the Prophet ﷺ, when you read about them, many of them are very old or elderly, you know, they're widowed. It's not what... It's not like what the common sometimes misconception is of the Prophet marrying 
And that's why I, I mentioned in the beginning that when the Prophet ﷺ marries Khadija at the age of 25, his youth, his, his you know, bachelor years are spent in the marriage with Khadija. It's not until after she passes many, many years later uh, that the Prophet ﷺ, you know, after the revelation and all of that, all of these other marriages happen. So those are the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, our mothers. Now we'll talk a little bit about the children of the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, he had Al-Qasim, and this was his kunya, Abu Al-Qasim, as we know is the kunya of the Prophet, the nickname of the Prophet He also had Al-Tayyib and Al-Tahir, and some ulama say that Tayyib and Al-Tahir are both the same child, and the child's name was Abdullah, and Al-Tayyib and Al-Tahir were sort of adjectives or descriptive terms. Those are the boys outside of Ibrahim that we just mentioned. The daughters are the ones that lived longer and have stories. And I want to today spend most of the, the time that we have remaining to discuss, to discuss those. The eldest daughter of the Prophet ﷺ is Zainab, known as Zainab al-Kubra. And she was born when the Prophet ﷺ was 30. Zainab al-Kubra was married to Abu al-As ibn Rabia, who was her cousin. And this really is a love story. It's a very, very, and it's really worth, worth at least giving the highlights of this story. Of course, this marriage and, and these stories that we're saying, most of them happened before the revelation, before the Prophet receives revelation. So after the Prophet you know, becomes Rasulullah, which is the bulk of what we're going to end up talking about weeks to come, of course this creates a problem because a lot of these people are not Muslim. And they're not even Ahl Kitab. These are Quraysh and they're polytheists and they're Kuffar and Mushrikeen, all of those kind of things. So it creates a problem. So Abu al-Asib bin Rabia, he politely refuses to become Muslim. And that, that creates a problem, of course. But Zainab and Abu al-As don't want to separate because they love each other. Zainab ends up migrating to Medina with the Prophet wasallam. And Abu al-As ibn Rabia actually goes out with Quraysh to fight the Muslims. So it gets even more complicated than that. But there's still that love between them. And he's captured after one of the battles. Before Zainab makes hijrah. She's still in Mecca. He goes out to fight her, you know, her father, the Prophet ﷺ. He's captured in battle. And we know that the Prophet ﷺ allowed those that were captured in battle to be ransomed. Meaning if, if, if somebody sent money for them, they would be freed. Or if they taught the Sahaba how to read and write, they would be free. So what does Zainab do? Zainab sends the ransom money, but sends with the ransom money for her husband a necklace that belonged to her mother Khadija who has since passed. So as the, you know, the diplomatic male, for lack of a better word, arrives in Medina, and then the Prophet opens up the ransom for this particular person, he sees the necklace that belongs to Khadija, so he starts to cry. Because he remembers his wife, Khadija. And as a matter of fact, Sayyidah Aisha, she said, I never was jealous of any woman except Khadija, even though she never met Khadija. And she says, it's as if there's no other women in the world except Khadija. Everything with the Prophet is Khadija, Khadija, Khadija. That's how much the Prophet loved Khadija, even after she passed, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So when he saw the necklace, you know, he became very emotional. 
So this man is freed, he's sent back. And this happens a couple of times, you know, he's captured, he's like on the fence. Until finally, later in the seerah, after Zainab makes hijrah to Medina, he arrives in Medina, even though there's a state of war between Medina and Mecca, and he arrives right before Fajr prayer. So she brings him to the mosque, and as the Prophet is leading the prayer in the mosque, she yells out, you know, from the women's section of the mosque, that Abu al-As ibn Rabia is in my jiwar. And al-jiwar is a concept, an Arab concept that Islam adopts, that anybody in the community can, can offer protection for, to anyone that's coming into the community. So if I bring somebody into the mosque and I say, this person is with me, then you have to, okay, he's with him, so we'll let him stay. I, you know, I'll vouch for him, as we say in English. So she's saying, I'll vouch for him. He comes, he makes his tawbah, he becomes Muslim, and then the Prophet ﷺ remarries them. And some people say that they're remarried with the original marriage contract, and some people say that she's married with a new marriage contract. Anyway, this is a very beautiful story between Zainab and Kubra, the eldest daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, and Abu al-As ibn Rabia. She has Ali, who dies, Umama, and Umama later marries Imam Ali after the passing of Sayyidah Fatima. And she had a miscarriage. And the miscarriage was one of the, uh, it was actually inflicted on her, unfortunately, because the Quraysh were after her as she was trying to make, to make hijrah, which is, which is how Abu al-Asim Rabia kind of got caught in the middle. We said that Umama married Imam Ali after Fatima passed away. So Imam Ali, he brought Al-Mughira ibn Nufal ibn Abdul Muttalib, and he made him promise that if he were to die or if he was killed, because you know, being a Khalifa was not an easy job at this time, obviously as we know from our history, he made him promise that if he, was, he dies or he was killed, that he would marry Umama, because he didn't want the granddaughter of the Prophet ﷺ to be, to be left. And this, this is what happens. Umama ends up marrying after Imam Ali is killed. She marries Al-Mughira uh, uh, ibn Nufal, and they both uh, have Yahya, and there is no, there are no descendants from Yahya onwards. And one of the, th the themes that we're going to get when we discuss this about the children of the Prophet ﷺ is that the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ is always restricted only to the line of Fatima and Imam Ali. And this is why it's important that we remember these names, that there are no other descendants of the Prophet ﷺ except from Fatima and Imam Ali. What we refer to now as Ahlul Bayt. That's the story of Zainab. The next child is Ruqayya. And the Prophet ﷺ had her when he was 32. Ruqayya was married to Utbah, the son of Abu Lahab. Before of Islam, of course. And then later, she marries Uthman ibn Affan. And she dies right after the Battle of Badr. And Ruqayya made hijrah twice. So she made hijrah to uh, Ethiopia and she made hijrah to Medina. Now both Ruqayya and Umm Kalthum, the other daughter, both of them are married to the two sons of uh, Abu Lahab. Oh sorry, one, I forgot one more thing about Ruqayya. Ruqayya was married to Utbah, the son of Abu Lahab, and Abu Lahab, 
was went crazy after the Prophet began his revelation. We know that he's like the arch enemy, so he he can't stand the fact that his daughters are married, his sons are married to the daughters of the Prophet So he swears that he's not going to drink any water. Uh, he's gonna, he's very theatrical, very dramatic until they are divorced, and he wanted to force the divorce in order that the Prophet would become busy with his daughters and not busy with the message. He was thinking in his you know tiny brain that. If, the, if, if his sons divorced the daughters of the Prophet, the, the Prophet would give up his, his message. Anyway, that happens, they're divorced. So she marries Uthman radiallahu anhu. And Uthman was one of the people to make hijrah to Ethiopia. But because this is his daughter, you know, his second daughter, the Prophet was worried about this hijrah because it was under very difficult circumstances. So anybody that was coming from Africa or anybody that was coming from Jeddah, you know, meaning they had crossed the sea and they were coming north to Mecca, he would always ask, how are my people doing in Ethiopia? Until he met an old lady and she told him, I saw your daughter and her husband, she was riding a donkey and he was leading it. So the Prophet felt you know, comforted that his daughter was being taken care of and Uthman, even though Uthman was an extremely wealthy companion, you know, very, lived a very luxurious, comfortable life, up until Islam, he was leading the donkey with the daughter of the Prophet on it, meaning that he let her ride and he was walking himself. And then the third daughter, Umm Kalthum, the Prophet had when he was 33, and she was married to Utaybah, the other son of Abu Lahab. Same scenario, Abu Lahab went crazy and made them divorce. And then she ends up marrying Uthman anhu, after the death of her sister. And that's why Sayyidina Uthman is called Dhul Nurain the one with the two lights, meaning the two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. Everything related to the Prophet ﷺ we refer to as a nur, as light. ﷺ. The, the two marriages to the two sons of Abu Lahab were just a kitab. There was, there was no consummation of the marriage. So they were reverted back to the house of the Prophet ﷺ before they, they remarried after that in Islam. And then the youngest daughter of the Prophet ﷺ is Fatima, Fatima al-Butul And she was born when the Prophet ﷺ was 35. And we know that Fatima marries Imam Ali And she is the only daughter to outlive the life of the Prophet ﷺ, but by only six months. So six months after the Prophet ﷺ passed, say the Fatima passed away as well. And as the Prophet ﷺ was on his deathbed, so to speak, Fatima came to him and he whispered in her ear and she cried and laughed and everyone thought that was very peculiar They've never seen you know it's not common that someone would cry and laugh you know in the same moment so after the passing of the prophet ﷺ, they asked her why did you do this and she said because my father informed me sallallahu that i am going to die you know this i'm on my deathbed but you will be the first of my family to join me so i was happy you know the famous story that we know Fatima and Imam Ali they have four children Al-Hasan, Al-Hussein, Al-Muhassan, and Zainab. Al-Muhassan dies young. So the two boys are Al-Hasan and Al-Hussein. Imam Hassan, older, slightly older than his brother, he married a lot. And Imam Ali didn't like this. But he didn't marry a lot because he married and divorced frequently. But not because he wanted to, because all of these tribes, they wanted to have some type of family blood relationship with the family of the Prophet ﷺ. So he had 11 children 
And all of them died except Al-Hasan Al-Muthanna and Zayd Al-Ablaj. It's very interesting that the, the, even though there are all of these children, all of these uh, descendants related to the Prophet they all it's always restricted, the line is very restricted, and then it comes down and then it proliferates in the, you know, throughout history. Imam Hassan, alayhi salam, he was six or seven years old when the Prophet died, sallallahu alayhi He died in the year 49 of the Hijrah, and he was 46 years old. He died poisoned. So he, he died as, as a shaheed. And he was the Khalifa for six months after his father. So he's also counted as the Khulafa al-Rashidun. Imam al-Husayn, alayhi salam, he was one year and ten months younger than his brother. And as we know, he died as a martyr in the Battle of Karbala on the 10th of Muharram in the year 61 of the Hijrah, and he was 56 years old. His head was severed from his body, and his head was buried first in Asqalan, and during the Crusades, the Fatimids of Egypt took permission from the Crusaders to dig up the head of the Imam al-Husayn. It was dug up and reburied in Cairo, and this is documented in our, in our history books, and they say that when the head of Imam al-Husayn was dug up, uh, it was dripping blood as if it had just been severed and the blood smelled uh, smelled more radiant than the smell of misk and then Zainab so Zainab and Hussein are buried in Egypt all of the boys the sons of the Prophet died before Islam all of the girls lived through Islam they became Muslim and they went to Medina and their husbands were Muslims and obviously their children and all of them died in his lifetime except Fatima alayhi salam. At the time of the hijrah of the Prophet Zainab al-Kubra was 23, Ruqayya was 22, Umm Kalthum was 21 and Sayyidah Fatima was 18. So this is a little bit about the family. This kind of tangent from our discussion of Lady Khadija. So we understand the personal life of the Prophet ﷺ. So we resume back sort of in our timeline. We are talking about the Prophet ﷺ just being married to Khadija and uh, living as a tradesman still has not received the, the revelation in case anyone forgot where we are. All of the jahili traits of Mecca were all things that the Prophet ﷺ by consensus did not participate in. He did not, even though he lived amongst the people, he did not necessarily live like the people. And he didn't like a lot of what he saw. He didn't like the, the idols. He hated them. He didn't want to hear their names. But he, that did not prevent him from living in society, living with the people, trading with the people, keeping his family ties, etc. Only two times the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that he said, well, I wanted to sort of do what the you know, young people of Mecca did. So I made the intention to go out. And those two times before I got to my destination, you know, I would, I heard a, a wedding happening. So I sat down to, you know, hear, hear the wedding procession and I fell asleep. And then I woke up, you know, in the morning. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prevented him from engaging. He never engaged in these things. And this is an important lesson that we learn from his character, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So when we say that the Prophet is our example, he is an example even before he receives the message. And when we say that he's infallible, he's infallible even before he receives the message. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. 
Should I continue or should I stop? Okay. Oh yeah, we're fine. Part of the Prophet ﷺ not liking the status quo is that he used to frequently retreat and spend time alone in reflection. And he would frequent the cave of Hira outside of Mecca and he would take some provision that would last him a certain amount of time and when his provisions finished he would go back to his family, you know, stock up again and go back. And he would lead, this was a, a normal practice of him. And in Islam this is called a time of seclusion or al-khalwa. And the point of the khalwa, the point of seclusion is that you reduce four things. You reduce speech. So when you're by yourself, you're not going to talk to yourself and you know, talk on and on and on. You're, you're quiet. You reduce food. So even though you take provision with you, you have to be economic in how much you eat and how much you consume so it lasts. You lessen your sleep. So it's not a sleep retreat. It's, you know, you, you, you stay up at odd times and you're, you would make dhikr or you would make uh, contemplation. You'd read Quran, something like that. And you lessen human interaction. These four things, this is what the ulama understand as the core benefit or the core function of the khalwa, the, the, the period of retreat. And the khalwa is a common Islamic practice that we read about in our literature of tasawwuf, literature of Sufism, in which it's very common that the shaykh would take his students and you know, put them in seclusion for a certain amount, a day, two days, three days, a week, ten days, forty days, whatever the case may be. And this is all a sunnah from the Prophet ﷺ. Because when you are isolated, when you lessen your food and your speech and your sleep and interactions, you become more... Uh, in a state of contemplation or that's what's supposed to happen which is why you, you, you need to do it with you know, some parameters so you don't end up sleeping like for a week straight and, and you just wasted your time but the idea is that when you lessen those things you become more in a state of contemplation and then the connection between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases so all of these things food, sleep, speech, people it all, they all can be distractions necessary distractions we have to live in life and we have to interact with each other, but a distraction nonetheless, at least a distraction from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the point of the khalwa, the point of the seclusion, is that you close off those doors you know, to uh, the dunya, and you increase the door that you have, or the relationship or the communication line you have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was something that the Prophet ﷺ did frequently. And it was at such time that we know, he, this is how the revelation first came to him, by Gabriel السلام, uh, during the month of Ramadan on Laylatul Qadr in which we receive the first he receives the first revelation Iqra' bism rabbika alladhi khalaq but that happens in Ramadan but the beginning of the revelation to the Prophet happens before that in the sense that that's the first revelation he receives but some things happen months before that and the ulama, they talk about the revelation of the Prophet ﷺ being different kinds. So I wanted to go over the eight different kinds of revelation. One form of revelation uh, are dreams, or visions and dreams. So the Prophet ﷺ would dream of something, and like the next day it would happen. Just like it happened in the dream. He'd go to sleep, 
And he'd wake up and everything he saw at night happened the next like two days. Now we, we all have vivid dreams, but not like that. You know, you might have a dream that something bad happens and then, you know, the, the next day you get like a parking ticket or something like that. But I mean, this is not, I mean, he had everything in the day that he saw in real life happen the night before. So that was one form. And that's sort of how it happened for him before this meeting with Gabriel in Hira in the month of Ramadan. Another type of revelation that happens is that the angel will take human form. So the famous hadith of Gabriel, in which the, Gabriel asked the Prophet, what is Islam, what is Iman, what is Ihsan, tell me about the final hour. Gabriel had came, come in the form of a man, and he looked like one of the companions named Dihya al-Kalbi, because Dihya radiallahu anhu was very handsome. And uh, which is why actually he ends up serving as an ambassador to the Prophet because he was very you know good looking and he, he looked he looked good and he spoke well. Another type of revelation, the third type, is that the angel would manifest as their true angelic form. So the angels in the Arabic language, al malaika, is something that is big and powerful, not uh, not the chubby baby on the Hallmark card. That's not the angel in the Arabic language. And the reason that's important for us to remember is that the, the root word of angel, malaka, mim lam kaf, malaika, mim lam kaf, from, those, from that same root in the Arabic language, we also get ownership, milk. So when you own something, it's, it's mine, it's not yours. And if you own something, it's yours, it's not mine. There's power in that. And if you move the letters around, you get lam kaf mim, lakama. And lakama in the Arabic language is to punch. You also get from kaf lam mim kalima, words, language. Uh, you could curse somebody. You, know, you, could, you could talk smack to somebody. You could hurt somebody's feelings. So all of these, uh, one of the sciences of the um, Arabic language is to see what all of these uh, derivatives of the same root, what the, what the relationship is. So the relationship between these three letters is strength. So when, the, when an Arab at this time heard the, in the revelation this idea of malaika, they understood that this was something grand and mighty, not something that was soft. And that's why we read, for example, the malaika fight in the battle of Badr. Because th- th- they can do that. So the third type of revelation is a true angelic form. The fourth, which is the most intense type, was the loud ringing of a bell. The Prophet would, would describe that sometimes a revelation would come to him as the loud ringing of a bell. And this was the hardest on him, sallallahu alayhi wa The fifth type of revelation is that it would come into his soul. Like, you know, like a chip was implanted and boom, he got the verses from the Qur'an. It was sort of in, inside, in, inside his soul, sallallahu alayhi wa The sixth is direct revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The seventh is Allah's speech from behind a veil, similar to how Moses received it. And eight, direct speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without a veil, such as in the Isra and Ma'raj. And this last part, the, the companions, they debated this. But nonetheless, these are the eight types of revelation. So when we read in the seerah that the Prophet received revelation, uh, the Qur'an was revealed to him, etc., it's in all these different types of formats and modes. It's not just one type. But these were the different types that spread throughout. Now, of course, in the, in the cave, this is a shock. You know, the Prophet ﷺ is used to 
hanging out by himself, you know, contemplative, sort of recharge his spiritual batteries. And then all of a sudden, this angel comes and squeezes him, almost squeezes the life out of him, and says, read. I don't read. That's why we refer to him as a Nabiul Ummi. You know, the, the unlettered is more a better translation than the illiterate, because illiterate assumes a deficiency of intellect. Rather, we say he was unlettered, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And you know, we know the story, and the, the Gabriel squeezes, you know, almost squeezes the life out of the Prophet. Read, you know, Iqra, Iqra bismi rabbika ladi khalaq al insana min alaq, Iqra wa rabbuka al akram, so on and so forth. The first few verses of Surah Al Alaq, in which we receive, the Prophet rather receives the first revelation. Assalamualaikum. How are you? Good. The Prophet comes back from this experience in a state of shock. And he, his first reflex is to go to his wife. And his wife covers him and comforts him. And she takes him to her cousin, Waraqa ibn Nufal, who has knowledge of these things, but is old. And he describes, the Prophet describes to Waraqa ibn Nufal what happened. And then Waraqa says, this is the namus that came to Moses. You know, this is, this is the revelation. This is what revelation is about. Again, these things were known at the time by those that inherited these types of religion. And he says, your people will drive you out of Mecca and I wish I would live long enough to be there with you. So I mean, that's, that's pretty bad news. So the Prophet, what do you mean they're going to drive me out of Mecca? What, what, you know, that's, he loves Mecca, that's his home. And not just his home, but... He is very Meccan, as we established with his lineage, and we established his family history, and being a descendant of Abraham and Ismail. And this is one of the sunnas of prophecy. And this is why we have all of these stories in the Qur'an. Remember, these stories revealed to the Prophet ﷺ to give him comfort that this is, this is what comes with the job. Every Prophet has some kind of enemy. Every Moses has a Pharaoh. Every Hussein has a Yazid. You know, everyone that stands for truth there will be somebody that stands against the truth. But the truth is always firmly rooted and lies and falsehood is very weak. That's very, very important. It's a house of cards. Allah says, truth comes and stays. Falsehood goes and vanishes because the nature of falsehood is that it, it vanishes. It's like a house of cards. Anything that is falsely built, falsely argued, that has a deficiency in its substructure, will always end up collapsing upon itself. It won't really stand the test of time. But look, the Prophet stands the test, and we're still talking about him till today. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So these type of pre-revelation visions, they happen around Rabi' al-Awwal, around the Prophet's birthday, وسلم, when he is 40. And then several months pass, uh, five, six months pass later, and then he ends up in Ramadan, and this incident happens with Gabriel. So there is some... Uh, precursors to the actual revelation itself. Now, I just want to mention something very uh, brief here before we break, or before we conclude for today, which is there is a, uh, oftentimes when people talk about this, uh, this part of the seerah, they mention this story about how after the Prophet Sassam went uh, had this experience in Hara, he goes back to Khadijah, uh, he's, you know, th there's no more revelation and he's stressed out and feeling anxious and upset and he wants to throw himself off of a mountain. 
we hear these stories. And, and I'm, my job is to say that we're not going to believe in that part of the story because it doesn't add up. It doesn't, it doesn't add up with everything we've been talking about that the Prophet ﷺ would become anxious and stressed out and buckle and want to commit suicide. I mean, that's, that's pretty far from, you know, Asadiq al-Ameen and all of these beautiful characters. And the ulama, in much more sophisticated language, they argued how that part of the hadith or that part of the story, the, the narrators of that, uh, of that particular story are not very strong and there is some gaps in the, in the chain of narration which would make us to conclude that that part is probably not, most likely not accurate, and definitely not copacetic with what we understand as the Prophet ﷺ. And from time to time in the Sira discussion, these things will come up. We'll try to highlight things that are common, what I, what I would call misconceptions, whether they be tafsir misconceptions, whether they be misconceptions in these stories, because it doesn't, it's not right, appropriate for us to think of the Prophet ﷺ as wanting to commit suicide. That doesn't work. And if somebody had any problem with that part of the story, good, because something inside you said that doesn't, that doesn't add up. Wallahu ta'ala a'la wa a'lam. We'll stop here for today. Yes. Alaykum as-salam. You have to turn up the volume. I can't hear you. Doesn't have any what? No, he has millions of descendants. At that time, all of these children and grandchildren, there could have been multiple paths of lineage to the Prophet ﷺ, but they're not. All of the lineage of the Prophet goes back to Hassan, Al-Hussein, or Zainab. That's it. There are no other children and grandchildren of the Prophet ﷺ. That's what I meant. But now we have millions, millions and millions of... They all died, except two. Imam Hassan, the only children that survived him were two. Yes, and in Karbala, all of, you know, over 70 of Ahlul Bayt were killed in Karbala. So, this is a, a part of our history, but also a, a sign, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَرَفَعْنَا لَكَ ذِكْرَكَ And we caused your remembrance to be far and wide. But at the early time in Islam, one would have thought, subhanAllah, there will be no descendants. But now we have millions and millions of descendants. Not just that, but in every Muslim country, most Muslim countries, there is a, a body, a certifying body, that certifies if this family is from the Ahlul Bayt or not from the Ahlul Bayt and traces them. So we can keep track of all of this. Now millions and millions of descendants. What? Kathib? Kathib? A liar? What is what? Lion. Lion, yes. That's one of the names for lion. Al-Asad is the more common name. That's why we refer to Imam Ali as Al-Haydari. Right? The the the, the they say Haydari. Right? Yeah. Long time no see. Yeah, fine. Alaikum salam. Some of the narrations, they say that Khadija 
Uh, I don't think it's an area of consensus, but I think most of the sources uh, give that spread that he was 25 and she was 40. Yeah. Yeah. Are you saying that the Prophet didn't have any doubt when he was coming down from Iraq? <clears throat> I mean, it was, a, it was a shock because that's abnormal, uh, but... Uh, yes, not doubt in the sense that, um, again, that hero's journey of Joseph Campbell. There's that. That's not what's happening with that. Uh, in that case, he's not doubting himself. He's not doubting the, because then, if you said that, then then we would that would open the possibility that there's doubt in the Quran. Well, maybe he was so stressed out that he made up surah, you know, this surah or that surah. Yeah, but then it would still nonetheless leave the, the possibility open that, that we could doubt the Qur'an. So, but we don't believe in that. We don't believe that he had any doubt. We don't believe that he forgot. We don't believe that he was overcome with uh, sadness. And he, but he had a longing for it because, because after the shock, it was like a great high. So he wants that encounter again. And one of the, one of the nature of the revelation is that it, does, it happens piecemeal. On purpose, so that it, you know, Allah says, so that we can make this meaning firm in your heart. So that's part of the the revelation. That's part of the or, or the sequence of those twenty three years. Is it, is it happens piecemeal for that reason, but not because he was doubtful or doubting himself or, you know, just I think shock or was more an appropriate way of understanding it. Yeah. Alaikum <laughs> salam. I mean, it's not impossible for a woman at her, at her age to have, you know, children at the age of forty. You know that that does happen. That does happen in plenty of places. Um, but I'm just kind of wondering, like, if you could clarify why scholars were so easy—not easy, but like, what were so willing to accept the age of forty? Because it's not as if she had one child at forty. She had six children. And the last child, she would have been in her 50s. Whereas if you were to take the age of 28 from, you know, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn, Ibn Saad, whatever, you know, it would make much more sense, especially 1,400 years ago at her, you know, and as well, there are complications with subsequent, you know, pregnancies and childbirth, you know, because even today, with modern medicine, childbirth is still a dangerous thing. Fluid loss. Sure, but it's not an it's not an issue of uh, belief or fiqh or anything like that. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, I if if but so, why is that common? Because many books will say say the Khadija was forty and the Prophet was twenty five. But it's just the the different narrations that we have. It's not it's not it's not a discussion of rationality. It's a discussion of how many texts or how many narrations do we have that says this and how many do we have that says that which one is stronger than the other one so therefore this one has more preference than the other it's not about necessarily the because that's plausible it's plausible that she could have been 40 it's also plausible that she could have been younger but what is more common what is what is more commonly narrated is that she was 40 
That's that's it. Yeah, but he's saying it's just at that time it's very odd. Yeah, it's odd because she was married twice before and she had children before. Yeah, sure. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying because this is history. I mean, this isn't a this isn't a fifty issue. This isn't this isn't like an Alida issue. This is more history, and we are you know we take weak narrations all the time. When it comes to history, but so but but remember that re, but remember forty forty is in uh, lunar years, right. so it would be like thirty seven thirty eight in solar years. Okay, I mean that's still pretty late even then. But sure, yeah, I'm just saying, just to put I it, know, in, I understand just to put saying, it, just I'm to put just, it in I'm perspective. Just to understand why scholars. We're so it's, uh, it's, not, it's not a preference. It's just about the narration. I mean, I'd have to dig into the chain and the narration. I mean, I, I'll, I could look into that, but that's where that comes from. Not, not that I like this versus I like that. It's what, yeah, yeah, whatever but, is narrated. Know, we have to take into account those kind of things, too. You know? uh, yes, if, if the text is implausible. But because this is plausible, it's just even when I was preparing, it didn't occur to me that there's a problem. Like, oh, she was forty. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it's still within the realm of. Yeah. But that's where that's where the difference would come from. Yes, uncle. No, Waraka was he converted, but the the family of the Prophet were loosely of the religion of Abraham, because they inherited that. That's why they are in charge of the Kaaba and feeding the pilgrims and things like that. But it was there were some people in the in the society of Mecca that sought out other religions. Uh, and were, you know, were just like now. Some people are just interested in that, so they they converted, but not by their origin wasn't Christian. No, Khadija was not. Yeah. I mean, I, I've read that, I've heard that as well. I, I don't know, I, we don't have any, we don't know the grave of any prophet with certainty except Sayyidina Muhammad Sasa. But this is, I'm coming, this actually, is actually a fiqh issue because if you think about it, there could be people buried anywhere. Uh, we don't know about, ancient people here even. So this is actually a fiqh issue that the Hanafis discuss. So how do you deal with that? Uh, because we can't pray on top of a grave. So they'll say, okay, well, you, you can't pray on top of a known grave. And they use the story of, of this in Mecca as an example. I mean, we all go inside the Hijr if we can and we pray, but never occurs to us that we're praying on top of uh, Hajar or Ismail. So this is sort of uh, forgiven. But we don't know with certainty. But for sure, somebody must have been, have been buried there. Uh, not during the Farda prayer, but when you can... You, 
you know, when you can sneak in the gap, you kind of just, yeah, so you can feel like you prayed inside the Kaaba. Although the Prophet didn't like, he, when he prayed inside of the Kaaba, he felt bad. And his wife asked him why, he said, I feel like now I'm going to make it a burden on my community, because everyone's going to feel like they have to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was no there was no mosque. The mosque around the Kaaba is a bid'ah. It happens during the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiAllahu anhu. Up until that time, there were houses right up. You know, you could open your window and the Kaaba's right outside. There was you know no. Even I've seen videos of um, the early 1900s, people making sa'i between Safa and Marwa, and the sa'i is in the marketplace. There's like shops in, <laughs> now it's, you know, like a very beautiful, it wasn't like, there were like shops, you'd have to like zigzag and this is your, your size. So even up until very recently, it was like that. It wasn't during, until the Khalafa, I believe of Sayyidina Umar, radiallahu anhu, that they made like a, some kind of, they moved things back. Um, my, my mother's family is Meccan. And my, my mother's family was in charge of one of the families that would give water, Zamzam water to the pilgrims. So somewhere there, there is some kind of land that belongs to my mother's family. So every time they expand the haram, they give the family the, the next land that's outside of the circle. You know, but at some point in time, our, our house must have been you know, right, right there. So, uh, Yes, our guest. <laughs> and Ibrahim himself was also very old. Sure, it's 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 completely plausible. They're just saying because there are other people that say that she was younger. Why do I do, are we saying she's forty? And I, but yes, from a point of view of plausibility, it's extremely plausible. It's extremely plausible. Yeah. When was the, you said the, the you said when the Prophet when he was when he, when they rebuilt the Kaaba when he was and he brought the black stone that they, they, they it wasn't they didn't rebuild it in its current form at that time it was wooden. Well, there's two things. At that time, it was only as high as like a person. So it was short. So I guess at what time did it get built taller? I don't know. Later. later. Yeah, after Islam. After Islam. Because nothing happens to the Kaaba until, after the, Prophet, until the Prophet takes over Mecca and that happens subsequently. Like with the Umayyads, it's like it was, I think, rebuilt during the Umayyads. And, because there are, there are certain times throughout history in which they, it was caught on fire. Uh, you know, just natural things that would happen. Uh, so it would have to be rebuilt. But its current height, that probably goes back, it, probably in the first couple centuries of Islam, I would say. That was one thing. The other part is that the, the Hijr of Ismail, that half circle, that is the part of the Kaaba. So originally... If that whole, that whole thing should be covered. Nice. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ said, no, I'm not going to do that because it, he said, everyone is now just a new Muslim. If I do that, it's going to be too, too many changes, so we'll just leave it like this. Yeah, it would be like long and then I guess like a circle at the end. <laughs>
So like imagine if you go next time you go to perform Umrah and that's what the Kaaba looks like. I mean, would you know people would be like? Yeah, there used to be an extra door. He didn't, but there used to be a door behind the the front door. There is a a door. If you see the picture of the Kaaba without the kiswa, you'll see the outline of the door. But then. All of these like myths emerged. Oh, if you stand behind this door, this will happen and that will happen. So it got it, everyone was getting messed up. So they they closed the door. The Kaaba itself has its own, you know, a, a lot of uh, interesting stories about the Kaaba. And inside the Kaaba, you can see pictures of inside the Kaaba what it looks like and and the um, you know, the different features of the Kaaba. Yeah, but but at that time it was just shorter. Yeah. Well, uh, Ramadan, Ramadan was just a month, uh, like the, because the, the, the calendar was the same, the same months in the calendar. Fasting didn't happen or was not prescribed until uh, the second year of the Hijrah. Uh, first year of the Hi- second year of the Hijrah. The Prophet arrived in, in Medina and Rabi' al Awal. So that Ramadan, there was no fasting? No. Yeah, that Ramadan there was fasting because that's when the Battle of Badr happened. The Battle of Badr happened in the 17th of Ramadan. So that, it was, in the, that was after the Prophet migrated. The, the obligation to fast the way we fast. But prior, Ramadan is just one of the months. The only thing that was the same were the sacred months. Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, and Rajab. And the Hajj took place in Dhul Hijjah. Even in pre-Islamic times, people would come and they would perform pilgrimage uh, around the Kaaba uh, 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 during the time of the Hijjah. Well, every religion has fasting. Every religion has some form of fasting. It, It doesn't look like our fasting, I understand, but there's some idea of Stop uh, withholding that which is permissible for a spiritual benefit. Every religion has a form of fasting. Absolutely, yeah. More than what we just said? Well, I mean, the, the history of the, the structure, uh, nothing really comes to mind, <laughs> mind right now, but it was built and rebuilt several times. Uh, you know, they say that the black stone is a stone that comes from paradise. It was white, but it became black with the sins of man, uh, sins of humanity. Um, the black stone, so the black stone is pretty ancient. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, this is Yaminullahi fil ard, this is uh, as it were Allah's right hand on earth. Um, we know that Abraham built it with Ismail, and the maqam of Sayyidina Ibrahim would move with, with Ibrahim so he could see uh, the Kaaba as it was built. You know, so on and so too, too, I mean, uh, too many things. Yeah.
I mean, Muslims with a capital M. I mean, they, they all believed in La ilaha illallah. They were all sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the same message of La ilaha illallah. But not Muslims like us with a lowercase m, which is that we follow this specific sharia, we pray in this specific way, we fast in this specific way. That came from Prophet Muhammad wasallam. So the sharia of previous religions would be different slightly than our sharia. They're not all the same. So that's what we mean when we, we say that we believe in the Anbiya, we're all Muslim. We mean they were all muwahid, they were all monotheists, sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the same traits that they were infallible, that they were morally upright, etc., etc. They have the same general message. That's what we mean. But the specifics will change from time to time. Yes. No, they were fasting during the battle of Badr. And Imam al Hussein was fasting during Karbala because it was an Ashura. So he was, he was, he was, yeah. So I have a question about uh, the Prophet being infallible. How you infallible means you don't make any mistakes, you have no doubts. So never in his life did he make mistakes. Never in his life did he make a mistake. Comforted him because he was in, you know, he was in shock. It was a very uh, uh, extraordinary circumstance and experience. But and and to calm him, you know, the way a spouse, you know, calms the other spouse. But that doesn't mean, therefore, that he's he doubted or, you know, and uh, he, you know, he was confused or something like that. That's that's not our understanding not only of Prophet Muhammad but any of the Prophets. The same goes to our belief with all of the Prophets, that they're all infallible. It comes from the idea that if the Prophets were fallible, then that would introduce the possibility that that which they bring could be fallible itself. So therefore the Qur'an is not the Qur'an. You know, we can, somebody will claim that he messed up. So let's just remove this verse. Let's remove that verse. Let's remove this hadith, etc., etc. So just to be consistent with, with that. Well, he just tried to push him out of the way, but he was very strong. So Yom Al-Qiyamah, when, when everyone will go to Moses and they say, you know, you are Kalimullah, you know, you are the one that Allah spoke to, uh, intercede for us for the hour to start. He will say, I, I can't, you know, I killed somebody, I, you know, I made a mistake. So for him, it's, he, it's a mistake because it's, it's, a, uh, it's a reduction of perfection in his estimation. But for us, we say he was protecting the, the old lady by pushing this, you know, Egyptian away from her. So he pushed him, the guy tripped and hit his head and died. I mean, it was a mistake. Uh, it, was a, it was involuntary. He didn't mean to harm him, nor did he do it full of anger. Yeah, so those like little issues, we end up ironing them out this way for, for, what I am, for the belief that I am uh, explaining to be consistent. 
Same thing with Abraham. They, everyone will go to Abraham on Yom Al-Qiyam and they say, intercede. He said, I can't because I lied. When he said to the uh, Pharaoh that uh, Sarah is my sister. I mean, it's not a lie. Sister in humanity, sister in faith, you know. But he said that so to protect, uh, protect Sarah from being taken by, by Pharaoh. But in his understanding, he's so close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that that's considered a sin. But for us, I mean, we would have we would have easily done that and not th- thought twice about it. I think it's is it prayer time? Uh, Abdullah. Does Allah speak? Does Allah speak? Of course. It's one of Allah's traits. And the Quran is Allah's speech. Part of Allah's speech. Wallahu ta'ala a'la wa'alam.